0: the third Sunday in the green season. Every green season, it seems recently, I've been saying that the Sundays after Pentecost are um, about Christian discipleship in one form or another. They're about how we understand uh, putting in our hands the ways and the means, understanding something about the cost of discipleship and uh, how we uh, become Christian disciples as we live and seek to be faithful. I read to you last week a, a, a list of the five marks of discipleship. I thought I'd read them again, and I'm going to mention them from time to time uh, during this cycle of the green season as a way of appropriating what it means to be a Christian disciple. And if there are some who are interested in how you do it, uh, this is a suggested list that is by no means the, the complete or the only one. But here goes one who keeps the Sabbath and commits to attending worship every Sunday, one who witnesses to an intentional faith as modeled in the baptismal covenant, one who seeks to honor the tithe as the biblical standard of faithful financial giving to the church, one who uses his or her spiritual gifts in the work of the upbuilding of the church, and one who reaches out to others with the love of Christ. I decided to read this again because I want to preach on two of the readings, 2 Corinthians and the reading from Mark's Gospel. The purpose for me to preach on 2 Corinthians is that it's one of the more subtle and uh, elegant uh, stewardship passages in the New Testament. And it's important to know some things about what Paul is speaking about here so that you understand what he's getting at. And uh, the things that are in the five marks of discipleship have something to do with the things Paul is going to cover uh, in this reading today. And then I thought I'd begin to say some things to you about the healing stories in the Gospels. In Mark, we're going to be reading some more besides what we read today. And I thought I'd say a word about understanding the healing stories or in part. I'll do it in more detail in future sermons, and specifically what these healing stories point to for Mark and for Jesus in his uh, willingness to heal these people, and uh, why this is an important thing. So here's the situation on the ground in Corinth. First of all, let me say this, a little inside uh, biblical a lot of biblical scholars believe that First and Second Corinthians is not just two letters; that it's it's maybe three or four letters that have been, you know, sort of put together in a form like, uh, uh, you know, First and Second Corinthians instead of First, Second, Third, Fourth, Fifth Corinthians. They've got it in one thing. So that means that there are a series of responses that have been interrupted by correspondence or messages back to Paul. So what I was taught in seminary was that when you read the letters of Paul, it's like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. So you don't know what the other people were saying, and you need to infer it from what it is that he's responding to. So he speaks about some concrete situations on the ground, and here's uh, following the progress of this. Paul comes to Corinth. He founds this congregation, and he goes away. I don't know how many times he went away and came back, but he went away. And during the period that he was away, a group of teachers came into Corinth, Christians with an alternative message. And they told the Corinthian congregation that Paul may have told you all of these things, but here's the real way to be a Christian, and here's what you must do. And uh, they were influenced by a variety of the influences that were floating around in uh, that part of the ancient world at the time. So Paul gets sidetracked from his main missionary focus and uh, uh, believes himself obliged to engage in a rather lengthy defense of his apostleship. He needs to say why he believes he has the credentials to do this, uh, what is the nature of his call and his vocation, and how he understands uh, the mystery of Christ and its importance and centrality for, for people in the world, particularly coming from the uh, faith tradition that, that he has come from. So he has been engaged in the defense of this, and as a result, some things have fallen through the cracks one of the important things that has fallen through the cracks is that he received an undertaking from the Corinthian congregation to assist him in raising money for the Jerusalem church there's another congregation that he founded which we about and for which we have no correspondence and that's the church in Macedonia which probably could be a a number of congregations, but in that part of Greece. So the Macedonian Christians had agreed to give some money to the Jerusalem church, and the Philippians uh, agreed to do this, and so on. So the Corinthians at one point said, yes, we'll we'll, uh, contribute to this. And uh, they're in arrears, and they didn't send pledge statements out in those days. (laughs) So Paul is reminding them of the promise that he made to the Jerusalem church. It's kind of a surprise. The Jerusalem church is in a somewhat straitened circumstances financially. And since it's at the center of things, you would think it would be otherwise. But at the time in which Paul was writing, the temple in Jerusalem had not been destroyed. Uh, Judaism, as it was known then, as a, as a religion, had its own way of doing things. And many of the people who believed Jesus is the, was the Messiah also were faithful practicing Jews. So the complexities of how to understand this and to keep this going, we're beginning to see something that biblical scholars will call the parting of the ways. How Christianity and Judaism now come apart. And this is just beginning to happen. What are we, When are we talking about? Maybe... Um, 58 A.D., somewhere in there. Paul is martyred in 62 on the road from Ostia, the port, to Rome, and during the Neronian persecutions, he and Peter are both martyred. The reason Rome has been so important, by the way, for so long is that it is the site of the twin martyrdom of the two most important apostles in uh, the tradition. In any case, Paul now is speaking to them about this honoring this commitment and saying some things to him about why he thinks it's important. And he has some wonderful things to say, I think, about how we understand our generosity and what it means as part of the process of coming to spiritual maturity. He uses a word, by the way, to refer to the self-giving of Jesus his his interpretation would be something like you know Jesus paid the ultimate price for us he gave the max and because he gave the max we too should be generous he's not recommending that we all become martyrs or give our lives for the faith but he is saying that this kind of generosity is important he calls it in Greek, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, where we get in Latin, we get a word like caritas, charity, grace. So generosity and grace have something to do with one another in Paul's mind. And so when he speaks about this in this passage, he's talking about God's graceful work and one of the side effects, if you will, or one of the things people seem to, to uh, discover is that as they seek to be faithful, their generosity increases. He's saying to them, you know, here's the thing. I read this passage, by the way, and I thought, here we are, Parish Life 2009, right? Sure, we have the pledges in. And now we have these alternative teachers who showed up and they've told him, told them that the pastor who founded this thing is Bogus. So people say, Well, if that's true, I'm not given. So Paul now is faced with in his correspondence writing to them and saying, You know, you made this promise, and here's the thing that we need to be interested in. I love this phrase. How do we match our abundance with other people's need? What's the way that we do that? And there are a whole lot of different ways to do this. You know, this isn't just about money. It's about how we match uh, other people's need through the abundance of the aspects of our character that are commendable. And the willingness that we have to share with other people the practical wisdom that we've learned in our lives that is godly. We may not attach any religious significance to these things, but they have enormous power and effect with regard to the building of the community and also the the ability to strengthen people in ways that uh, we can't absolutely explain in in, uh, maybe rational terms. So finding out ways to commend the abundance of your practical wisdom uh, is an important thing to do. And he says, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're in straitened circumstances. Some of the people's fortunes in this passage have changed. Another thing is rather like today, isn't it? So, that, so he said, you need to discover... In the midst of all that, um, he says at the very end, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. There's always enough. So he's saying that in some ways, uh, we need to use this as an occasion, calling you to responsibility to honor your promise, to understand the opportunity that is here for, for us to understand the nature of God's activity in people's lives. It's one of the best things in the Corinthian correspondence, I think. I've always liked this, this very much. And uh, Paul is able to uh, commend this to people. You know, I say this to you all the time. The Corinthian congregation was the church that Paul founded that was on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement. <laughs> they were an absolute mess. You know, there was a lot of factionalism. There was a lot of cliques. There was a lot of uh, uh, you know too many chiefs and not enough Indians, too many cooks spoiling the broth. Whatever term you want to use, they had it in spades for sure. So it's a reminder for us to think about how we match our abundance with other people's need. And that's uh, something that can be done in a variety of ways. In the the reading from Mark's Gospel, we have two healing stories. One is uh, both of them have to do with um, a subject that I will get to in a minute. But let me say some general things about healing and Jesus. That Jesus healed people is one of the most widely attested facts in the New Testament. One of the ways people determine the veracity um, the and the historicity of what has go- goes on in the Gospels or is described is by a technique in scholarship we call multiple attestation. Which means there are a lot of, there's a lot of affirmation that Jesus healed people. Multiple attestation that people were healed of a variety of things. But Jesus always seems to be somewhat reluctant to heal people. And the issues of the, he- of the healing, or the story of the healing, oftentimes the healing itself is almost incidental. There is something that is being get, get gotten at in this that we need to understand, a point that is being made either by Jesus, either by the church who wrote the gospel. And the third possibility is we see something there for our own use in in appropriating it and making part of our own personal history. So here's what this is about today. Um, First of all, too, we're going to read some other healing stories, and we'll discover that um, the healing takes place as we begin to see the interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states of the person afflicted go through a transformation. So there's some kind of change that happens with the person uh, being healed, that really is at the heart of understanding the story itself. Jesus has been told there's a, a young girl, 12 years old, as we find out in the end, the daughter of a leader in the community named Jairus, who is ill in, in her house and uh, you know, at the point of death. And as he goes and a crowd of people are following him, Uh, some woman who has had a hemorrhage for 12 years touches his garment and is healed. And Jesus goes, who touched me? Right? And all of his uh, disciples around him said, we got a whole crowd of people around here pressing on us and you're asking who touched you? (laughs) But somehow he felt this and he said, who touched me? And the woman was healed. Now, here's the thing. He then makes it to the house. The daughter has already died. Uh, he puts everybody out except the parents. And then he, ra- he heals the daughter. And she erases, is raised from the dead. And he tells people not to say anything about this. So you'll see that for him, this isn't something that he, he wanted to shout from the rooftops. But, and there may be a reason I'll say in a moment about that. Both of these stories are about healing people who are not ritually clean. The woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years would have been a complete outcast. There was no way within the, the, the laws of Judaism for her to be clean. And therefore, she would have been shunned by by others for a long time. An outcast and a pariah. And in the ancient world, uh, this was the result probably of some great sin that she had committed. Uh, and she was getting her, her own back for as a result of, of this particular thing. You see? So when we have the situation of that ritual uncleanness and then the time it took for Jesus to deal with the woman the little girl dies now and is a corpse and a corpse is unclean you can't touch a corpse without becoming unclean and therefore having to go through a very elaborate machination to get to get clean again okay now you and I may think this is all silly And elsewhere, though, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. So how we understand what goes on within what appear in that context to be God's laws, we see God in Jesus stepping outside his own rules to seek and save and heal. And so Mark's in, in this section of Mark's Gospel, it is about, always about now who God, uh, how God goes beyond those things that people heretofore had thought these are the parameters of how we operate and what we have to do, and nobody gets to go beyond them. And we've just seen the Savior do it. Now, by the time of the writing of Mark's Gospel, what would you think might happen? Maybe they were saying things to themselves like, you know, in our own missionary work, maybe it's time for us to begin to uh, reach out to people that heretofore we had not thought were acceptable, namely the Gentiles. And it seems at this point that the Gentiles may be more ready and willing to listen to this message than our own people. And so by virtue of that, our obligation is in some way to see how we can punch beyond our own ways of being and relating and understand inclusion, acceptance, healing, love, forgiveness in ways that uh, stretch our preconceived notions about them. So fast forwarding to 2009, maybe in our own lives that's the way we might put this to work. You know, there's great healing power in a person's willingness to reach out beyond what they consider their limits are to uh, in some way take other people seriously. There is great healing power in the ability to listen. There's great healing and power to be willing, as I said earlier, to commend the practical wisdom that is in you. You know, I don't mean when I say this giving people advice about how to live their lives. I always say this at weddings. Unwanted advice has the odor of ancient fish. <laughs> That's what he said to me when I was a young kid. You know, he was trying to actually be a little bit nicer than, you know. Sort of like Mrs. Truman when, when she was asked, can't you, can't you get the president to quit using the term horse manure? She said, it's taken me this long to get him to use that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So sometimes, you know, it's not giving people advice about how to live their life. It's about uh, commending the practical wisdom uh, you have to another person, not sort of in a, I'm handing this down to you, right? Thank you, you know, that sort of thing. But I'm handing it over. In fact, that reminds me that, you know, Scripture, tradition, and reason, when we speak about the transmission of the tradition, the way in which the uh, biblical witness describes it, certainly Paul, he never talks about handing down the tradition he received. He always says, I'm handing it over. Do you you see the difference? So that means that you, you get a living thing. Now, this is true in terms of practice, Tradition has something to do about practice, what it is you do. The life of prayer, the spiritual life, has traditions that have developed around it, a variety, and some are more useful to some than others and vice versa. But when we commend it, it is handed over for you now to continue to keep alive, but in a way that is not treating it like you've received it from some higher up who's going to punish you if you don't use it correctly. There's a difference. So using, rightly handling the tradition is certainly important, um, but it's also important to understand that um, we need to uh, be somewhat more humble with our handling of it. And I think Mark's gospel and his healing stories is all about this in some ways, how we understand handling the tradition rightly and the healing power that is present in, in doing that. So I guess this week the assignment might be, Think about, in whatever area of your life it might apply, you can match your abundance with somebody else's need. How do you do that? Something Paul says is important spiritually for us. And how do we understand the ability to uh, uh, know that there's a framework in which we live and find life-giving and important and keep us on an even keel, certain internal discipline and self-regulation? And at the same time, it might be necessary from time to time to reach beyond that uh, to uh, save, heal, include, accept, love, all of the things that are part of the values of the gospel of Christ. Every one of you has the ability to do this in big and small ways. And sometimes I think we're hampered because we uh, wish to, to apply a religious vocabulary always to these activities. They have deep religious significance. But they don't always uh, need the religious vocabulary. Like the Nike ad, just do it. Amen. Cafe or whatever. (laughs)